0: Whether it's the Sherlock Holmes Tour in London, the night helicopter flight over Las Vegas, or whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon, whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com.
2: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music and lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear.
0: Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go.
2: AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema, this is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. Our miniaturization theme continues from last week uh, with Weird House Cinema's third miniaturization film following Dr. Cyclops from 1940, 1957's The Incredible Shrinking Man, which we talked about last week, and now we're going to go just one year ahead uh, into 1958 with Bert I. Gordon's Attack of the Puppet People. I I think a pretty obvious uh, cash in on the popularity of The Incredible Shrinking Man, but it's not like a Shrinking Man, Incredible Shrinking Man ripoff. Uh, There are other also elements of Dr. Cyclops in there. There are also some, uh, I think, some clear, there's a clear homage to 1935's Bride of Frankenstein.
0: It's certainly not a ripoff of The Incredible Shrinking Man in that it doesn't have any real similarity to the story. But it, I would say, probably is in that they are trying to make a quick buck on the idea of shrink movies right after there had just been a really big one. On the other hand, uh, oh, I guess, no, no pun intended. <laughs> on the other hand, Bird Eye Gordon, I think uh, it, it was a perennial uh, fascination of his to make movies about big things getting small or small things getting big.
1: Yeah, which are essentially the same exercise. Like, there's <laughs> when you get down to it, um, you know, what's the difference between a movie in which a man fights a giant crab or a movie in which a, wait, let me think, now, now, I, now I've lost my, my own train of thought in this. What is the difference between a movie in which a normal-sized crab fights a tiny man
0: or a normal-sized man fights a giant crab? You have just discovered a Galilean relativity. <laughs> <laughs> That uh magnitude really only means something in the context of a frame of reference, yeah <laughs> uh, yeah so so the, yeah the, the, there's kind of baseline physical profundity to a lot of these uh blow up movies and shrink movies, uh but th- that is the element brought over from the incredible shrinking man. What is not brought over is the uh sort of the the character complexity and the uh the the i don 't know all the wisdom and insights of the incredible shrinking man, which if you haven't heard last week's episode, I, I do recommend you go back and listen to that one because I think Rob, you and I were both—it's fair to say—shocked by how mm-hmm. interesting and thoughtful The Incredible Shrinking Man was as a story.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah, just just really solid and thoughtful. Um, yeah, yeah, far more thoughtful movie than anticipated. I would say that this movie as well was more thoughtful than anticipated. I had a much lower bar for this one. I was expecting just pure spectacle, pure cash-in, and, I mean, that would have been fine. I was looking forward to that experience. It is more thoughtful than I expected, but not necessarily in ultimately constructive ways.
0: No, I'd say the thoughts here do not really seem to build on one another as they did in Incredible Shrinking Man. Mm. It's more like it's a shrink movie, and occasionally there are some thoughts. Yes. But I know what you mean also by comparing this to uh, James Whale's Bride of Frankenstein, one of the one of the great monster movies of all time. Because, you know, the Universal Frankenstein series, uh, with each movie, it has to one-up the mad scientist. So the original mm-hmm. Frankenstein has the titular Frankenstein, the mad scientist who makes the creature. And they got to get an even more mad scientist for the sequel. So they come up with Dr. Septimus Pretorius, a mm-hmm. fantastic villain. And his hobby is making homunculi. So he has these little jars with tiny people in them, including like uh, a little like king and a little queen. And I think the little king is always trying to get out of his jar into the little queen's jar.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's a weird, wacky sequence uh, in, in a, a, like, is that a great and classic
0: monster movie. But another strange alleged fact about Attack of the Puppet People is that if reports are to be believed, this film played an unintentional role in american history and the role is this okay it is june 17th 1972 the night of the watergate break-in uh so agents of the nixon white house have uh sent out burglars to break into the headquarters of the democratic national committee at the uh in the watergate complex in in washington dc uh they're they're trying to do some espionage they were there to what i think uh Uh, like, photograph documents and maybe plant bugs and stuff. So that's the famous burglary that kicks off Watergate. But uh, the the thing that was the, that sort of, like, set the fuse burning on uh, everybody finding out about the the Watergate break-in was that the burglars were caught that night. Mm -hmm. And the burglars had a spotter who was supposed to radio them on their walkie-talkies and let them know if the police showed up so they could get out of there. But according to an article called The Bartender's Tale, How the Watergate Burglars Got Caught by Craig Shirley, uh, published in June 2012 in The Washingtonian, uh, this spotter who was across the street at the Howard Johnson's Motor Lodge, his name was Alfred C. Baldwin III, did not notice the arrival of police because he was too absorbed in watching a movie on TV. And that movie was Bert I. Gordon's Attack of the Puppet People. (laughs) So if if this is to be believed, if Attack of the Puppet People had been even slightly less amusing of a film, Mm -hmm. the Watergate burglars might not have been caught and American history could have unraveled in a very different way.
1: Yeah, what a strange place for, uh, for, for, uh, for alternate universes to split around Bertie Gordon's uh, attack of the
0: puppet people. What scene do you think it was at when the police showed up and this guy could not be bothered to look out the window?
1: Ooh, well, there are plenty of candidates for scenes that couldn't have been Ed. Uh, it. It had to have been, in my mind, it had to have been the various special effects sequences um, or various scenes in which uh, miniature people are cavorting about.
0: You don't think he was glued to the TV during one of the many elevator scenes or or the scenes of Mr. Franz receiving a phone call saying that he should come out to the lobby to meet someone? Yeah, 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 probably not one of those scenes. But it's worth noting
1: on on that, yeah, that Attack of the Puppet People is a movie that, uh, you know, don't expect it to necessarily grab you right away. You gotta let it set in. You gotta let it get through. It it needs to travel to another location before it
0: it kicks in with the spectacle. Okay, I got another beef with this movie. And this is not gonna turn into just ragging on Attack of the Puppet People because highly amusing film, I'm gonna Mm -hmm. say, overall. This is one I do recommend uh, for B-Cinema purposes. But... This is one where the title and the poster just lie. They just lie to you. (laughs) The title is Attack of the Puppet People. The only plausible candidates for the titular puppet people are not puppets. They're people who have been shrunken to the size of dolls. And these doll people do not attack anyone, except in one instance where the thing they attack is a puppet. So the (laughs) title would only make sense if it was Attack of the Puppet, by people, yeah, yeah, and the poster, to your point, shows uh, multiple little
1: people uh, wielding a knife like it's a medieval battering ram against yes. what I guess we were talking about this before we recorded. We're not sure that we assume this is supposed to be a dog, but it looks kind of like a Tasmanian devil,
0: yeah, or like a like a wolverine or something. I, I don't know what this animal is. And the the poster tagline is "Doll Dwarves
1: versus the Crushing Giant Beasts." again <laughs>
0: highly inaccurate completely misleading there there is a there are brief scenes toward the end this is not even a major part of the movie fleeting moments of uh, the the puppet people being threatened by animals including a rat and a dog but they're never like in the same shot and they're over in a few seconds
1: Yeah, it's not like, I mean, I guess what they were going for is like, hey, do you remember those great sequences in The Incredible Shrinking Man where he fights a spider or a house cat? Well,
0: prepare for more of that in (laughs) Attack of the Puppet People. I guess they figure by the time you get to those scenes, most theaters have a policy where it's too late to get the money for your ticket back. Yeah. (laughs) Well, well, let's, let's let the people know
1: what's in store for them here. Joe, what's your elevator pitch for Attack of the Puppet People?
0: Uh, all right. Uh, people keep disappearing at the offices of Dolls Incorporated, a small company uh, run by the eccentric old Mr. Franz. The mailman vanishes without a trace. His former secretary was never heard from again. Also, you are not allowed to play with the freakishly lifelike dolls in glass tubes over in the corner display case. That's it. <laughs> all right. Let's listen to the trailer audio.
3: Gar is the nice looking young man, introduced by John Hoyt to pretty June Kenny. And when boy meets girl, well, they do what comes naturally. But the loss of love has made this mild-mannered man into a maniac, a maniac who wants to make you a plaything. And the fear-awesome fact is, he knows how to do it.
1: A friend. All right. Well, if you want to watch this one before proceeding with the rest of the episode, it's widely available for digital purchase and streaming. You can also pick it up on DVD as part of the MGM Midnight Movies series, as a two-pack with Village of the Giants, and I think it's also available as a, as a straight-up Blu-ray.
0: I would also add that as of today, I think watching this movie is the best way to see unedited scenes from uh, The Amazing Colossal Man.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, again, kind of, a, kind of a shame. I'm, I'm going to be optimistic, though, and hope that the reason for this is because somebody's just about to put it out in some sort of restored special edition Blu-ray. Especially since, uh, to get into the, the connections here on this one, uh, the, the director, the producer, uh, story credit as well, uh, goes to Bert I. Gordon, who lived 1922 through 2023. Uh, he passed away earlier this month at the age of 100 years old.
0: Right. So we sort of ended up here by saying we wanted to do a Bert I. Gordon movie. And we were originally going to do The Amazing Colossal Man. But as you noted, that's like, it's not on disc. And then that led us to The Incredible Shrinking Man. And then somehow we ended up back with Bert I. Gordon for the, the ripoff of The Incredible Shrinking Man. Right. So we've,
1: we've come back around to, to Bert I. Gordon before the month is out. Bert I. Gordon, B I G, Mr. Big. Um, Those were his initials, that was his nickname, because he did a number of films involving big bugs, big humans, or humans so small that everything else seems big in the case of this picture. He was an icon of 1950s Beast Cinema. His earliest credit is producer on 1954's Serpent Island, but he moved into directing and writing with the follow-up 1955's King Dinosaur. And then in 1957, he began busting out his Giant Man movies. The first Giant Man movie he did was 1957's The Cyclops about an area of Mexico where giant radiated animals and a 25-foot tall man with a disfigured face, one eye, and savage instincts uh, you know, r- rule the countryside. Okay. Um, I don't know that I've ever watched The Cyclops uh, in its entirety, but that one has Lon Chaney Jr. in it. The same year, he also gave us the Amazing Colossal Man. Uh, this is another atomic enlargement tale, but one that uh, explores the emotions of a rational human being at the center of the change, played by Glenn Langan in a role that I always liked. Again, would love to come back and do this film when we have a better way to watch it. Um, uh, it's, uh, and uh, maybe we'll discuss this a little bit when we get to the part in this movie where they're watching The Amazing Colossal Man. Mm-hmm. In 1958, he followed this film up with a sequel, War of the Colossal Beast, uh, in which they say that Glenn survived, but he's now disfigured and savage, played by a different actor, and they dress him up in the same Cyclops mask from (laughs) the earlier picture. Um, So that kind of completes his Giant Man trilogy, Uh, but Uh, then he did a giant spider picture titled Spider or Earth versus the Spider, and then this movie, Attack of the Puppet People.
0: Wait, so you could say that in 58, he may have had two different movies, both inspired by The Incredible Shrinking Man. This one where it shrinks humans, but also maybe Earth versus the spider because it involves humans fighting a giant spider puppet.
1: I suppose so. Though I guess giant spider, I mean, when you start thinking of like a full list of giant spider movies, uh, there are quite a number of them. Gordon remained active throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and even came back to direct 2015's Secret of a Psychopath while in his 90s. Um, Of his post-puppet people films, I'd say some of the more notable ones include 1960's Tormented. This one was featured on MST. It has Joe Turkle in it. Uh, 1962's The Magic Sword, also uh, an MST 3K classic. This one starred Basil Rathbone, Estelle Winwood, and Gary Lockwood. Yeah, very fun sword and sorcery sort of movie, uh, you know, very much for the kids.
0: I've never seen it, but this one does look fun. I considered it for the show.
1: Oh, yeah, we could totally do Magic Sword someday. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And the, the MST3K episode was 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 great fun as well. Uh, 1965's Village of the Giants, also an MST3K uh, episode. This one had Tommy Kirk,
0: Bo Bridges, Ron Howard, and more Joe Turkle. Uh, is this one kind of a, attack of the killer teenagers? They're like giant <laughs> sort of sock hop teens in it. Yeah, yeah,
1: I believe so. And I, yeah, and this one, uh, if I didn't mention already, this one was also featured in MST3K, but I have a less clear picture of this one. I maybe only saw it once. Uh-huh. Uh huh. 1966 is Picture Mommy Dead. This had Don Amici, Zsa Zsa Gabor uh, in it, and this is an evil stepmon film. Ah. Uh. 1972's Necromancy, starring Orson Welles. Um, Orson (laughs)
0: Welles?
1: Yeah, uh, Orson Welles for a quick payday on this one, and um, it's not supposed to be very good. Every July peas grow there. (laughs) And then uh, 76, Food of the Gods, a giant killer animal film based on a work by H.G. Wells. And then 1977, Empire of the Ants, a pretty late in-the-game giant ants film based on Wells, starring Joan Collins.
0: Uh, Haven't seen it. Heard uh, very conflicting reviews. Some say it's a hoot. Others say it it is a kind of gross bore. It's certainly no phase four.
2: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
3: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity Presents
0: During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential
1: All right. George Worthing Yates has screenplay credit on this he lived 1901 through 1975. So it may have been Gordon's story, but someone had to put it together into a screenplay. And I suppose that's where Yates comes in. His writing credits go back to the 20s and 30s with a bunch of adventure films, including a 1938 Lone Ranger film and a 1947 Sinbad the Sailor film starring Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Maureen O'Hara, and Anthony Quint. But in 1954 you see his credits take a sharp turn down the atomic turnpike with the giant ant movie Them. Afterwards he worked on 55's Conquest of Space and It Came from Beneath the Sea, 56's Earth Versus the Flying Saucers and he did some uncredited work apparently on the Amazing Colossal Man.
0: Oh, these are some some respected sci-fi movies, uh Them yeah. and and uh, Earth Versus Flying Saucers and stuff.
1: Yeah. Along with Puppet People, he worked on War of the Colossal Beast, followed by 58 Space Master X-7 and Gordon's uh, The Spider and Tormented. I'm also very intrigued. I haven't seen this, but I'm intrigued by this 1958 film uh, that he was a writer on, Frankenstein 1970, which indeed is supposed to take place in 1970 and stars Boris Karloff as Baron Frankenstein.
0: I would love to know what writers in 1958 thought 1970
1: would be like? I think I read that they originally were thinking uh, it, it was not quite 1970. It was just a, a, like a few years into the future. But they're like, no, nope, this is too futuristic. We've
0: got to bump it up even more. By 1970, every family will own a car the size of a battleship.
1: <laughs> All right, let's get into the cast here. Uh, John Agar is back. Uh, This, this of course, was the star of Tarantula, uh, which we we covered uh, not too long ago. He plays Bob Wesley. Uh, Agar lived 1921 through 2002, longtime American actor who appeared in bunches of films from 48 through 2001. Uh, You can basically divide his work into two categories, the war movies and the westerns, and then on the other side, the B movies. As we talked about in uh, our Tarantula episode in the when it comes to the, the war movies and the Westerns, he worked with folks like uh, John Wayne. Um, but in the B-movie category, he's in stuff like The Mole People from 56, uh, Revenge of the Creature from 55, and Hand of Death from 62.
0: It's John Agar. I mean, it's exactly what you would expect. He's total cornball in this, but I would mm-hmm. not change it for anything. It's got to be John Agar.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's, he's the, the dependable lead. You know, I can imagine if you were a director, not only were you, would you be happy to have him, you'd wish you had a whole suitcase full of him.
0: <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, we also have our, our villainous character here, a, our, our evil doll maker slash puppet master slash shrinkinator. This is Mr. Franz, played by John Hoyt, who lived 1905 through 1991.
0: Uh, you know, I have some questions about how this character is written, but mm-hmm. uh, I think John Hoyt is actually much better than the part deserves. Really, he he brings a uh, an interesting take on the role. I mean, so this is an inherently a, a creepy villain, a guy who shrinks people down into dolls and and wants to control their every move. But John Hoyt, I think, makes the interesting uh, decision of making him ultimately even creepier by giving him a uh, very gentle, mild mannerisms and making it seem like, Oh, how could this guy hurt anyone?
1: Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Like it's the kind of role that by all rights should have gone to somebody like John Carradine, who uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. would have physically had a similar presence on the screen and would have seemed you know, nice, nice and tall looking, or at least thin enough that he looks tall in, mm-hmm. uh, in comparison to our, our shrunk characters. But, does, generally does not come off as lovable. Uh, but yeah, Hoyt's uh, take on this character, like you can't help but buy into uh, the heart of the character. At times in ways, and I'm not sure how much of this is his performance and how much of it is the script, at times it, it feels like too much effort is made to make you feel for this guy who is a, a kidnapping and human experimenting villain. Yes, So uh, Hoyt was uh, an American actor best known for When Worlds Collide from 51, Spartacus from 1960, and Brute Force from 47. He has a lot of credits going back to the 1940s, lots of TV. He acted in such films as 63's X, The Man with the X-ray Eyes, 1964's The Time Travelers, and 1974's Flesh Gordon. His many TV roles include uh, bits on the original Battlestar Galactica, The Six Million Dollar Man, Kolchak the Night Stalker, Planet of the Apes, the TV series, Hogan's Heroes, Get Smart, The Monkeys, the original Outer Limits, and much more. This is not really a one-to-one comparison, but I kept thinking about Annie Wilkes from Stephen King's Misery with this, oh, yeah. with this guy. You know, the the way that he's... Uh, without you know the overt violence and aggression you see from uh, from Annie Wilkes in in Misery, but you know he's he's that kind of like I, I love you and therefore I must keep you. I'm doing this for you. I'm 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 saving you from the world. That sort of thing.
0: Yeah, he at one point he gives a speech about how look, you'll never have to pay taxes again now that I've made you into a doll. <laughs> but it's true. He never has to break out the sledgehammer. Um, he he just sort yeah. of. Uh, the his his worst threat really is like, well, I'll just put you back in the tube for a long time,
1: yeah, yeah, um it's and in fact, I kept thinking that he would have to squash somebody to make an example out of them, and that would you know up the ante for uh for making him a believable villain, but they they never did still- re- really really good performance, uh yeah, kudos,
0: yeah, thumbs up, John Hoyt,
1: now really, our main character in this outside of the, the the evil puppet master here is Sally Reynolds played by June kenny who lived 1933 through 2021.
0: I think if you look up ingenue in the dictionary you would get a picture of this character. Uh the character is someone who arrives sort of like uh bright-eyed and innocent and unsuspecting of anyone and then is confronted with a sinister plot of shrinkination. Yeah.
1: Given the limits of this role, I think she's she's really good in it. You know, she's especially when she's up there with John Agar, and John J- Agar, you know, again solid, dependable. Uh, but his character, as we'll discuss as we get into the plot, uh, there's not a lot really to latch onto there either. And uh, I don't know. You can see she's one of the it's one of those those performances uh, with uh, with Jim Kinney where I feel like you see the wheels uh, the the gears turning in her head even when you wouldn't have to for a film like this. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she was a 50s B-movie starlet that was active from the early 50s to the early to mid-60s. Her films include 58's The Spider, 1961's Bloodlust, and 1957's Teenage Doll, ironically enough.
0: Does she play a doll in that, too? I don't
1: think so. I I forget exactly what the write-up on Teenage Doll was, but I don't think it's the shrink film. All right. Just a few other players of note. I'm not going to go through all the the shrunk characters and the side characters, uh, but there's a character named Stan. He's one of the, I believe, the the newlyweds that have been shrunk, uh, played by Ken Miller, who lived 1931 through 2017, a notable youth actor of the day. His credits include 57's I Was a Teenage Werewolf and 1964's Surf Party. Then we have a character by the name of Georgia Lane, played by Laurie Mitchell, who lived 1928 through 2018, model-turned-actor, best remembered as Queen Yelana from 1958's Queen of Outer Space, which also starred Jar Gabor with a screenplay by Charles Beaumont, who we've talked about before, a lot of connection to the classic Twilight Zone. Mm. All right, we have a little girl wander into the... the, We have multiple little children wander in and ask questions about the dolls, which is not surprising. Most of the movie takes place at a doll shop. Uh Uh-huh. But one of these little girls is played by Susan Gordon, who plays a little girl named Agnes. Uh, This was was Bert's daughter. Uh, Lived 1949 through 2011. She was apparently a last-minute replacement for another child, and this was her first acting gig. Uh, apparently, her this is one of those situations where her parents didn't really want her to get into acting, but uh, you know she kept she kept at it. Uh, And she ended up acting into the late 1960s with appearances in such titles as Tormented, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Gunsmoke, The Original Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock Hour, and My Three Sons. And then finally, the music on this picture is by Albert Glasser, who lived 1916 through 1998, film composer who worked in the 40s, 50s, and 60s mostly. Um, He apparently started off as a Warner Brothers Music Department copyist, uh, but moved up and made a name for himself, mostly in, in B-movies, and he worked for Bird Eye Gordon several times.
0: Well, speaking of the music, one of the first thing when we were watching this, the first thing that uh, made my eyes light up with joy was when in the credits you realized that this movie has a theme song, like a song, a <laughs> song, a popular music song written for the film. The title song is uh, called You're My Living Doll, music by Albert Glasser, who you just mentioned, mm-hmm. and Don Ferris. Lyrics by Henry Schrage, Schrage. I don't know how you say that. Um, and then sung by cast member Marlene Willis. That's right she lived
1: 1942 to 1982. she's a, yeah she's she's in the film playing Laurie, one of the the, the, the shrunk people. Uh, this is only one of I think two different film roles that she did but she has a lot of variety show appearances from uh, from back in the day. she to show up on variety shows. so I guess we uh, think of her primarily as a as a musician who also did some acting gigs here and there.
0: So, we're we're talking about a shrink movie that has a song with lyrics about being a doll. It's called You're My Living Doll, and they sing it in the movie. Yes. That's classy. Attack of
1: the Doll, people, would, would have been far more fitting, right? It would have matched up with the song and, and yeah. it would have been a little more honest.
0: Where does the puppet thing come from?
1: Well, as we'll discuss, I mean, they do
0: share the stage with some puppets. And puppets yes, are part but, of the plot, but... All right, we can get to that. Oh, but another thing I wanted to note is uh, there are there are puppet people who we never meet in the film. We see them in a glass display case in the office. We also see them in the credits. So as the credits are rolling, we see people in glass tubes appearing across the screen. And I think only of a couple of the ones in the credits ever show up in the film. Now, are the ones in the credits, refresh my memory, are they
1: moving at all? Or is it seemingly the same uh, special effect that they use for the the, the, the people uh, in the actual film?
0: They're, they're not moving. I think they're okay. just, it's the same effect, I think.
1: Yeah, which I took to be uh, just 2D paper cutouts of, yes. the, of the people <laughs> that were carefully held in such a way that you would not reveal that they were 2D to the camera.
0: Yes, which sometimes made for like awkward Hand posture with respect to the camera,
1: like you're 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 holding this tube of John Agar, and you're staring directly at his ear, and realizing that it's really him.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay, uh, so we uh, we open on a shot of, uh, of a tall office building. I don't know what city this is supposed to be in, maybe New York, uh, but we learn this is the Tilford building and uh, inside there is a Brownie troop. Uh, so Girl Scout troop is getting off the elevator and they're headed for a visit to an office called Dolls Incorporated. Inside there, the troop leader meets with the secretary, who's a very friendly and professional young woman, uh, and the secretary calls on the phone to let Mr. Franz, know they're here and then tells them they are welcome to go check out the dolls on the wall display and they do that and then she's like oh but excuse me not those dolls right (laughs) next to the other dolls in the hermetically sealed glass tubes with the suspiciously human looking flesh i did not mean you could play with those dolls because mr franz is very particular about them let's go look at the other ones he
1: is big about just having his dark secrets just open for display for anyone that happens to wander into his business.
0: Yeah, so you're like shrinking people into dolls. Why would you have them in the front room of your office? He doesn't even have them in a vault or anything. Well, I
1: mean, his response would be, how could I keep them in the back room? I, I get lonely. I need to look at them.
0: <laughs> but he's always in the back room. It's, he's having his visitors and secretary look at them. But what do I do when I come into the front room? I would get lonely (laughs) if I couldn't see them. I keep
1: one tube of John Agar in the bathroom just so I have some company.
0: Yeah. Um, So we zoom in on the the tube dolls while we get a horrible dramatic music sting. And, of course, we see the the very realistic looking people, except they do look kind of flat. And I think they are paper cutouts. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we cut to some time later, and uh, a different young woman is wandering the halls of the building. She consults a classified ad that she's cut out uh, from the newspaper. It's in her hand, and it says that, uh, it says, General Office Girl Wanted. Easy work, good pay. Apply to Mr. Franz, Dolls Incorporated, Tilford Building, Fifth Floor. Uh, And this is June Kenny as Sally Reynolds. So she lets herself into the office and then wanders around looking at things uh, and ends up picking up a figurine from the desk to examine it, and then suddenly there's a hand on her shoulder from behind, and she whirls around, and here is John Hoyt as Mr. Franz. What would you guess is the first thing he says to her? Like, hello, (laughs) or are you here about the job? The first thing he says is, young lady, do you like my dolls? (laughs) Uh she says, Oh yes, I think they're lovely. Uh and then he, he takes her around to meet some of them. So he shows off, oh, here's a bride, isn't she lovely? Here's a housewife going shopping. Oh, here, she's very important. This is my nurse. She helps keep my little people well. So he's already like taken the dolls, uh taken taking them a little serious. Mm-hmm. And Sally notices this. She's like, oh, you treat them like real people. And he says, but of course, they're my friends. My name is Mr. Franz. And she uh, is creeped out, as many people would be. So she tries to leave, but Mr. Franz runs to the door to stop her. Good move. And he starts giving her a job interview there while he's preventing her from leaving. The main thrust of the job interview is, are you married? Answer is no. Do you live with any family or roommates? Answer is no. And he's like, oh, you're perfect. You're exactly what I need for this job. (laughs) You're hired next victim. Yeah. And I guess the, I don't know, I guess it's just that, like, Sally is so is so good-hearted and innocent, she doesn't notice, maybe, that the, that the entire thrust of the job interview is, would anybody notice if you went missing?
1: Yeah. Even in this interview, though, Franz is constantly doing this. He's always playing the pity card. Uh, the yes. self pity card, you know. He, he, there's the loneliness thing, but also the well. I and I'll, I'll pay you a standard rate, maybe even a little more, though it'll be difficult. You know, yeah. something to that effect, where he's he's like, it, it's, it's always about what a bad time Mr. Franz is having.
0: If, if you've seen what we do in the shadows, Mr. Franz is kind of an emotional vampire. And yeah, he's he always is. just like, oh, I've, I'm so lonely. I couldn't. I don't know what I would do without you
1: yeah hes very lonely and controlling and is all about putting the blame for his loneliness on anyone in his vicinity and in this case, they're mostly people he's kidnapped and um and experimented on
0: right so he eventually uh uh pressures her into consenting to answer a ringing telephone uh and then he goes back to take the call in the rear so here we get a good look at the the layout of the office, which will. Uh, spend most of the movie in. There's sort of a front room where, like, there's the secretary's desk and a waiting area and dolls in uh, display cases on the walls. And then there's a middle room, which is the factory. This is equipment for making dolls. You get like plastic uh, injection molding and conveyor belt for doll heads. And then these tables covered in, in parts, uh, arms and legs and stuff. And then there's a back room behind a door that says no admittance. And beyond that door, there's a room that has a desk and a telephone, as well as a couple of operating tables with some big ray gun aimed at them. Mm. Anyway, he goes, he takes the phone call, and it's from a Mr. Grant who's like, hey, uh, do you know somebody named Janet Hall? She was supposed to start work with us this week, but she never showed up. Hmm. Uh, and we find out, of course, that was the previous secretary who mm. Mr. Fran says he doesn't know where she went. But he, again, begs for pity. He's like, oh, you know, Miss Reynolds, Janet took such good care of things. I don't even know where the cash register is. Um, but then, uh, oh, and then so uh, <laughs> Sally goes out to start doing her job, I guess. And and we get a, the, the music swelling ferociously with a dun-dun-dun as it zooms in on the tube in his mm. arm. And it's obviously Janet, damn it. Yep, yep, there she is, tubed up, shrunk and tubed. Okay, so some time passes. Uh, Miss Reynolds is apparently settling into her new duties. Everything seems to be going all right, but sometimes life throws a curveball at you. Sometimes you're just sitting there, punching the keys on a typewriter in a room full of dolls, and in walks John Agar. He's ready to sweep you off your feet to St. Louis, Missouri in a whirlwind of arrows. And... (laughs) That is, at this moment, I realized exactly what this movie needed. So, it's a late 50s B-horror film. So, in the core cast, you need three figures, really. You need the sparkly-eyed ingenue. You need a creepy old man with a science or doll-related secret. And to make the triad complete, you need a a grass fed usDA prime rectangle and John <laughs> Agar is exactly what the doctor ordered he he's uh oh, and his character just sucks he's a <laughs> he's a salesman named Bob Wesley, and as soon as he comes in and starts talking to her, he is a pushy jerk uh like you get the feeling this is this is a salesman who makes his employees ask permission every time they want to drink from the water cooler. Uh, and, uh, he, you know, so the first thing he does is he's like, I need to see Mr. Franz. And Sally tells him Mr. Franz is busy, can't be disturbed. So he just ignores her, like barges right past her, uh, to, to throw open the door and look in the back.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He, this is a, this is a character that I, I got the impression that he needed to be shrunk down to size, you know, th- yes. he, th- this probably did him some good
0: character wise. Oh, he introduces himself as he says, "I'm Bob Wesley, the best salesman in St. Louis." <laughs> so maybe that that uh,
1: says it. Maybe this is supposed to be St. Louis, or maybe well, if not, what's he doing in New York or wherever, right?
0: No, he's from St. Louis because at one point he talks about taking her back to St. Louis with him. Remember? Oh okay. yeah, the, why does it it seems like a weird uh brag, a strange flex <laughs> if you're in the big city in the big Apple, you know. Uh, but despite how impressive and important John Agar is, he he still can't see Mr. Franz because Sally explains he's in the back back room, the one labeled no admittance. And he cannot be disturbed while he's in there. She she can't even call him on the phone. He'd be furious. And I think once you've seen the whole movie, you can probably assume, oh, in this scene, he's back there playing with his uh, shrunken humans. Yeah, he's, uh, he's having tea time for them or something. But John Agar is confused by this. He's like, Mr. Franz, how could he ever be furious at you? He's, he's as mild-mannered as a kitten. How is that even possible? Uh, and in the, so they start to talk, and Sally admits that she's a little bit uh, uneasy about Mr. Franz, but she hesitates to say why, and John Agar turns on the charm. He apologizes for his uh, earlier behavior, and he says, uh, I want to be friends, okay? And the charm seems to work. She agrees to be friends. And she starts to explain. She gets a little weirded out when Mr. Franz gets into one of his peculiar moods. When he, quote, talks to them, he seems so serious, almost as if he expected them to talk back. And John Agar asks, what what do you mean? Talks to who? And she says, his dolls. (laughs) to which John Agar responds by just laughing in her face. I'm not sure why. Is he mocking her for believing he assumes incorrectly that Mr. Franz talks to his dolls? This reaction just, it doesn't make any sense. It it might just be bad writing. I don't know. I don't know. He he does come off
1: incredibly unlikable because it feels like he's laughing at her even if he's supposedly laughing at Mr. Franz.
0: I think he is laughing at her. I think the point is he's like, of course he's not talking to his dolls. You are silly for thinking he does that. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. Well, you know, The Incredible Shrinking Man was all
1: about a a guy who became more self-aware the smaller he got. So so maybe uh, some positive (laughs) change is in store for Joan Hagar.
0: Yeah. um. So we cut to the next morning uh, or some other day, and there's an elevator scene. John Agar is is back. He's pestering Sally in the elevator on the way up to their office. Uh, good Lord, how many people are in this elevator? This is not an elevator. This is a room.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was taken aback by this as well, because I, if my count is correct, there are like 14 people in this elevator scene. Uh And I I just did a, I didn't do extensive research, but I glanced around at some stills from famous cinematic elevator sequences. And I feel like you're generally looking at eight to 10 people tops. Mm -hmm. Uh, But 14, this is incredible. This is like a freight elevator.
0: You would think buildings would have a dedicated elevator for John Agar alone. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, given his uh, sales credentials okay but also here in this scene we there's a whole thing about the mail carrier bringing a letter for Janet Hall the previous secretary and it has to be signed by her but she's not there so Sally Reynolds offers to take the letter uh, and then Mr. Franz says he'll take it because he expects to see it or see her again the point is Janet Hall is missing and Mr. Franz takes the letter he promises to give it to her but later Sally finds the letter in the garbage and this raises her suspicions Mm. Uh, also, we learned that the mailman is new because the old mailman, quote, old Ernie, who used to deliver uh, to this building, mysteriously went missing two days before his retirement, right around the time Mr. Franz made that incredibly realistic mailman <laughs> doll that no one is allowed to touch. Uh, and, there, oh, and then also we get a, a scene later where <laughs> Mr. Franz, like, closes a door and hanging on the back of the door is just a mail carrier's satchel. This is just adding to his crimes. He's interfering with the post office at this point. Yeah, oh, man, you don't want to mess with that.
2: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
3: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware.
0: During Dell Tech TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select-next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. So, you know, much like many movies are padded out with extraneous scenes of people driving to the next location or parking cars when they arrive, this movie is padded out with a lot of scenes of people arriving at the office, calling in to say they've arrived, walking back and forth between the rooms in the office and so forth. Uh, and, and to be clear about driving scenes, not all driving scenes in movies are extraneous. Sometimes filmmakers use them for a good stylistic reason, maybe to establish a tone or a mood. But a lot of B movies, you know, they don't accomplish much in terms of style. The, the driving scenes are just some filler to get you to the target runtime of 82 minutes. And I think a lot of the the sort of like human padding scenes in this are the same way it's just people arriving in places saying they've arrived and so forth not much is really getting done there in terms of plot or mood
1: yeah i'm reminded of, of there was at least one essay from umberto echo where he gets into this there may have been more than one one where he's talking about movies one where he was talking about literature uh like what happens when you have uh, like dead time in movies, dedicated to characters moving from point A to point B, riding in elevators. I think there was one who was also talking about what, uh, like, what does it mean when, say, James Bond spends a lot of time pouring his coffee uh, in a James Bond book? Um, mm. And so, on one level, having these kinds of moments in your your film or just your general storytelling, you can highlight the mundane to either intentionally or accidentally uh, then highlight some sort of um, supernatural or uh, element that will present itself or some sort of supernatural, or uh, not supernatural, but uh, some sort of supernormal stimuli. But it also is the sort of thing that clearly occurs in motion pictures just by virtue of, uh, of amateur filmmakers or filmmakers that are just kind of uh, cranking it out. Uh, and I tend to think that this picture is more of the latter uh, as opposed to some sort of pointed attempt to make the, uh, the shrunk scenes feel more amazing.
0: It's interesting, though, you raise the case of uh, James Bond pouring his coffee and stuff. I do think specifically in the case of James Bond, a big part of the aesthetic of the Bond books and the Bond films is uh, the stereo feeling that emerges between like sex and death on one hand and consumption of luxury uh, food and drink items and use of like luxury hotel and automobile facilities uh, <laughs> on, on the other end. You know, it's like exactly what the James Bond feeling is is uh, it's danger. It's like erotic and uh, and life and death thrills alongside luxury goods. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's just a basic, too. When there's food in a movie, if someone orders a meal, you want to see that meal. I I forget what I was watching the other day. I was watching something with my wife, I think some TV show, and a character ordered some meal or some dish, and we never got to see it. And that kind of made me mad on some level. Like, like, no, I want to see what they ordered. Like, show me the food.
0: I think that's something most good directors understand. Showing food and drink is an important part of setting.
1: Yeah. And we do have some food and drink sequences coming up.
0: Yes, that's right. Uh, Oh, we do get a scene with like a doll clothing vendor where Mr. Franz is asking Sally which article of doll clothing she likes best. And she picks out, oh, the white organdy with blue ribbons. And uh, he says, oh, it's a pity you can't model it for us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so he's still being a creep, and then, uh, oh, and this is also the scene where Sally discovers the letter to Janet Hall torn up in the trash. Dun-dun-dun! Yeah. Uh, oh, also here, we introduce a new character. This is Mr. Franz's old friend, Emil. And it is through Emil that we learn a lot of backstory. So, I think they knew each other from back in the day when they were both in the puppet show business so mr friends was once a puppeteer a performer and uh, emil is in town to do a string of big puppet shows at the theater it seems like he is still a world-class puppeteer and we learn later that he's doing some kind of puppet adaptation of dr jekyll and mr hyde
1: now, I should throw in here, I didn't cover Michael Mark earlier. He's the actor playing Emil, lived 1886 through 1975. Uh, some of his uh, uh, bigger films were Son of Frankenstein from 39, The Wasp Woman from 59, uh, and um, a slew of other pictures. He was also in Return of the Fly from 59. But yeah, in this, in this picture, it's kind of, it, it's, he, it's a fun little role. He's also the character who frequently has has shown up to uh, uh to, to greet Mr. Franz Mr. Franz is like oh I have I, all, my only friends are the dolls uh, what will I do without them and like here's an actual like real life friend he's like hey buddy can we hang out and he's like oh, oh if I must if I must but I really need to get back to my dolls
0: yeah he's constantly trying to get Emil out of his office so that he can go shrink people some more <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, Emil, as, like, the guy who shows up from, you know, the life before to talk to the villain, he kind of reminds me of, like, doctor Strausky in Bride of the Monster.
1: Mm. <laughs> because he's, like, generally concerned about his old friend. He's, like, asking about him, like, you know, how how's your wife, et cetera.
0: Oh, that's right. So uh, here here is another thing we, we get from Mr. Friends' emotional history. So we learn he was once married to a beautiful golden-haired woman named Emma, but she left him. Mr. Franz says, my marionettes were playing in Luxembourg, and she ran away with someone she liked better, an acrobat. And I was thinking, what's, what's with the, is Luxembourg significant? Is that a place where people run away? (laughs) Maybe that's just incidental.
1: Yeah, I, I, am not sure what the connection would be there. Other than she had enough of Mr. Franz, um, she found somebody better. And uh, and he has has never let it go, and and refuses to take a chance on any new human beings in his life that have not been completely managed, shrunken down, and completely controlled by him.
0: She left him for an acrobat who promised never to shrink her. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, he says, "You know what? I'm happy now because I have my dolls. That's what I'm into. Uh, I don't want to come back to show business." Uh, she, uh, his his friend, tries to get him to, you know, yeah, come, 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 do show business again. And he's like, "I don't want it, uh, but I will repair your uh, puppets for you." So mm-hmm. that there's that. Oh, also, we see he still knows how to operate puppets because they go to the theater and he puts on a little show for Emil, and. I don't, I'm confused by this theater setup. So the people in this large theater are all watching this tiny puppet show in a box about three feet wide. Like it looks like a a normal size auditorium. So people might be seated like 80 feet away and these puppets are less than a foot tall and the action is taking place in this little three foot space.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I've seen a number of puppet shows over the years, and sometimes they've, I I mean, I, it's, it's certainly a medium where it's better if you can be up close for it, especially mm-hmm. the smaller scale stuff. But I've also seen puppetry in venues where my seating wasn't that good, and maybe it was a little harder to make everything out, but it was still uh, pleasant and amusing. Uh, so I'm not sure. I guess it could go either way. But if the scene is making you doubt it, then I think the scene has some uh, shortcomings for sure.
0: Hmm, yeah. Um, once again, here Emil tries to tempt Mister Franz back into show business, but he's content where he is in the doll business, and he says, "Why must someone who is content have something wrong with him?" And uh, Emil says, uh, "Contentment is not natural," but uh, you know he's he's not going to budge him. So uh, then, oh, then we cut away to one of my favorite scenes in the movie. That is the scene at the drive in movie theater where John Agar and Sally are, I guess, on a date for some reason. Why are they on a date? Did we see any basis for like a romance being established other than him negging her and saying he wanted to be friends? And then, then oh, that's the, right. Next step if is did they say he wanted to be friends. Okay. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, they go to the drive in and they watch The Amazing Colossal Man on the big screen. But I love this because Bert doesn't just casually drop it in. It's not one of those moments where it's like, ha, did you notice that The Amazing Colossal Man is on in the background? No, no, no. We watched several clips from the film featuring Big Glenn Manning freaking out over his size. Um, And, uh, yeah, it's it's wonderful. I I, I like the idea, too, that drive-in viewers were watching this movie and had previously watched... The Amazing Colossal Man, perhaps at the same drive-in, and now they're watching, like, drive-in through a drive-in screen. Yes. There are also some, I think, tongue-in-cheek comments from Agar's character about, you know, about trying something new, um, which felt like maybe it's kind of a bird-eye Gordon, like, I usually make movies about big things, now I'm making one about small things, ha-ha, wink-wink.
0: But I may be overanalyzing the whole sequel. Do you think he had realized what his initials spelled by this point? Um, You know, I'm not sure at what
1: point, because uh, who was it that gave him that uh, nickname? I want to say it was Forrest J. Ackerman or somebody like that. Um, so uh, that, that mm-hmm. nickname may have been
0: bestowed uh, pretty early on. Well, anyway, this drive-in date leads to some plot developments, because as is well known, if you watch a Bird Eye Gordon movie at the drive-in on your first date, the next step is immediate and irreversible (laughs) progression to full wedlock. So they decide (laughs) to get married. And how seriously how bizarre is the proposal in the scene how i don't even remember how does it develop he's just like uh she's like oh are you going to go back to st louis and he's like you could come with me and she says and do what he says become mrs bob Wesley.
1: well you have to remember that the amazing colossal man is um, is a very stirring film about <laughs> about the growing distance between a man and his wife and oh, okay. so it can it can make one maybe even a little bit impulsive about the need to hold on to people you're you've known for like quite a week uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, and and maybe you want to you want to actually lock that down with a wedding ring,
0: yeah, it makes you hold fast to the nearest pushy salesman. Uh, so they're gonna, yeah, they make plans. They're gonna fly to Las Vegas and get married the very next day, and then they're gonna move to St. Louis together. And so, uh, Bob tells her, you know what, you don't even have to tell, have to tell Mr. Franz, I'll tell him for you. I'm gonna go in in the morning and, and tell him that, that you're not coming back to work. That's, I guess that's how these dynamics worked in the 50s. Yeah. Well, I think she says she didn't want to face him because oh, okay. she felt bad because of course he'd he'd like guilt trip her about it. We know what yeah. he would do. He
1: he is a creep, so and, uh, and and can be very forceful with his self-pity. So yeah, get John Agar in there. He's he's a, a cold hearted hunk. He can he can manage exactly. it.
0: Exactly. Yes, this pushy salesman will not be bothered by his pleas for pity. <laughs> but then uh, back at home it's the next day and Sally Yeah, where's where's bob she receives a call from mr franz it seems bob has left town without her how horrible Mm. uh and so she goes into the office and mr franz is like oh that wasn't very thoughtful of him but sally doesn't believe it could john agar possibly have treated her this thoughtlessly Oh, also now Mr. France has a tube with a tiny John Agar in it. And she's <laughs> like, wow, it really looks like him. It could almost be him, except mm. he wasn't this small. And Mr. Franz gives a speech in response to to her saying, you know, it really looks like him. He says, thank you for the compliment. You know, it is the aim of every composer to fit the world within the limits of his symphony. A writer wants to put all of life between the covers of his book. Well, if I can make my dolls in the image of those I know and love, I'm satisfied.
1: You know, I'm reminded for the first time here as we're recording it that even though last uh, episode was was our first shrink movie in a while. The episode before that, if I'm remembering correctly, Clash of the Titans, um, that, that of course, also has these scenes where like Zeus is handling these miniature versions of people and uh, controlling and manipulating them. Uh, And that's basically what Mr. Franz is creating for himself here. He's setting himself up as the uh, self-obsessed God that treats everyone in his life like they are little playthings that he has complete control over.
0: Well, he could have just taken a page out of your book and got a miniatures hobby. He didn't have to shrink all <laughs> these salesmen and secretaries. That's true. I was actually uh, clipping out some minis while uh, watching
1: the movie and, and didn't realize the irony of that until I was a good ways in. I have one of you and J.J. and everything. It's so <laughs>
0: Uh, so Sally's, I think she's seen enough. She knows what's going on now. So she goes straight to the cops. She says, please help. My boss turned my fiance into a doll. <laughs> and the detective treats her like she's out of her mind until she starts to mention other people to whom she thinks the same thing has happened. There is Janet Hall, uh, the previous secretary. There's a mailman named Ernie and so forth. And what do you know? The detective starts leafing through his files and he finds that these are all all missing persons. But that makes me think, wait, the detective never put it together that like half of the missing persons in town all have a connection to the same doll company? Yeah, well, I mean, we don't know that he's a good detective. Yeah, but, uh, he appears not to be. <laughs> but I
1: did ultimately kind of like this. See, this sequence kind of uh, got its hooks in me because it seems like he's just going to laugh her off. But then he's like, oh, no, actually, these are all missing people's cases. And then he's like, well, let's go check it out. And part of me gets kind of wrapped up in the, in, in the plot here. And I'm like, yeah, okay, nail him. Get this guy. We're going to actually yeah. arrest him here
0: yeah I know what you're saying that that was a a, a nice plot move. I think a lesser movie would have just had him laugh her off completely and then move on to the next thing mm-hmm. but no she she makes a logical case. she's like, What about all these missing people? Those are actually missing people so so uh we get further investigation uh so Sally and the detective go to Dolls Incorporated. Uh, The cop is like, uh, look, Franz, I hear you've been turning people into dolls. Is that true? (laughs) And uh, he, you know, Franz is sitting there with John Agar in a tube at a table, and he he denies it. He's like, whoa, that's silly. How could I turn people into dolls? And the detective asks, how come that doll you're holding looks exactly like her boyfriend? Because it's a little John Agar there. And he replies by setting it on fire. (laughs) Yeah, just drops a match in there, and woof, uh, John
1: Agar goes up in flames, and is just completely incinerated.
0: Now, of course, Sally is horrified, but then this leads to uh, Mr. Franz opening up maybe my favorite set piece in the film. (laughs) This is the best image from the movie.
1: Yeah, opens up the suitcase, and what's in there but six tubes of John Agar, a suitcase full of John Agar's.
0: Looks like Santa came early this year. It's so many John Agars. What would you do with them all? Yeah, and I mean, I was trying to piece that together.
1: Like, why? Well, first of all, how? Because (laughs) we'll get into exactly how Franz's miniaturization is supposed to work in a bit. And he never, it's never mentioned that he can create copies. Like, I don't know why we have a plurality of Agars in the picture. It's never explained Uh in context with Franz's method of miniaturization. Um Like, are these just mere backups because he likes this guy so much just in case a friend gets uh, smashed or eaten by a neighborhood cat? Or I was wondering, too, is this like a fuel source? Because we see how quickly John Agar goes up uh, in Uh flames. Perhaps a canister of this is enough to, like, uh, power an airplane uh, to fly from New York to London or something.
0: Oh, yeah. John Agar, the energy source of the future. You can imagine, like, this facility powered by 100% clean-burning John Agar.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess the other less fun interpretation is he also makes super accurate dolls that can, in this case, serve as a as a as a decoy for his actual miniaturization efforts. But Mm. there's nothing else in the picture to back that idea up either. So it's just, but it's still such a delightful sequence. It's So weird and wacky when he opens that suitcase and there are all these John Agars in there.
0: All right, so after the suitcase of agars, the detective leaves, and obviously Sally is quite embarrassed. She wants to quit. She's like, "How can we go on after this i I need to I need to leave. I'm never coming back. but uh, then Franz locks the door. He gets even creepier. He says, "How could I ever bear to let you go?" And he approaches her and we see her her screaming, and then the lights go out. And what happened was she loses consciousness. And when she wakes up again, she is lying down on a strange surface with her head on some kind of rope or something. And then she she sits up and she finds she's dressed strangely. And the rope her head was lying on was not a rope but a telephone cord Mm -hmm. of enormous proportions. And what she's wearing is a napkin. That's right. Miss Reynolds has been shrunken. Uh, So she's surrounded by all these huge objects, a, a rotary telephone bigger than she is, big, scaffolding of drawers and shelves with paint cans and stationary and chemistry equipment all of monstrous size. And right off the bat here, I think we need to compare the shrink effects in this movie with last week's movie, The Incredible Shrinking Man. Uh, (laughs) The Incredible Shrinking Man is wonderful in many ways, but with the effects, I think it really made you feel the alien horror of changes of scale. And so the gigantic sets representing matchboxes and sewing needles and everything, uh, the mouse traps—they uh, they looked spectacular, but they also made you feel how truly frightening it would be to be in the same environment you live every day, but a couple of inches tall.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: By comparison, the special effects and gigantic sets in this movie are not even close to as good. Now, they are quite amusing. I'm not going to... I mean, this movie's a lot of fun, but they do not at all make you feel that scale change as as the kind of nausea or horror that, that Incredible Shrinking Man does. Uh, one way that puppet people really does not compare is that the scaled up stuff all around them feels totally inconsistent in respect to the size of their bodies. Like, are the puppet people bigger than a telephone or smaller than a doorknob?
1: Yeah, you get the feel that, like, basically, Bert and his people were like, hey, you, your team, are, you're building a giant doorknob. You, you're building a, a giant uh, telephone. And yeah. it wasn't really, there weren't really any details about exactly how all these things should scale to each other.
2: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arcea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
3: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other
0: During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential.
1: I will say this, this uh, sequence where she wakes up and she's small, um, first of all, compared to Incredible Shrinking Man, Incredible Shrinking Man is, uh, is a lot of the film is about the dread and the uh, gradual acceptance of becoming small, these changes in scale. Uh, here, she's just suddenly small, so it's shocking. And if nothing else, we do get a nice scream here from her, a nice scream face uh, with hands on both sides of her face.
0: While she's looking at a giant rotary telephone,
1: yeah, I mean, that, that's got to be, I, if you woke up
0: and saw that phone, wouldn't you scream? She's like, I have to answer this thing all day long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so Mr. Franz comes in and he, he starts giving his villain speech. He's like, well, surely you aren't afraid of me, are you? Uh, and he gives a, a long speech explaining his motives, uh, what goes on with people now that they're shrunken, his methods. Oh, first of all, he, like, very creepily makes her dress up in doll clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he brings out uh, tiny John Agar. He gets his two about. And it, I guess this is the real one, and the other ones, the, the one he burned was a decoy. But th- this raises the question again, or did did he make multiple living John Agars? I mean, I've got to go in that
1: direction. There's, there's still a suitcase full of John Agars, maybe five John Agars anyway. He had to get one of them out. We never find out what happened to the other Agars. I assume there's a scene later where the police come back and I was imagining a, a scene where Franz is like, uh, you know, hurriedly flushing extra John Agar's down the toilet to destroy the evidence.
0: <laughs> it's like in Goodfellas. The, yeah. <laughs> Some are going down the toilet. He's also stuffing John Agar's in his underwear and stuff. <laughs> Uh, um, Yeah, so Sally gets John Agar out of his tube, and he wakes up, and John Agar's mad. He starts, like, throwing things at Mr. Franz, and, it, you know, he's tiny. He doesn't really do anything. But Mr. Franz explains his position. He's like, uh, he says, why do my dull people always hate me at first? You know, he says, I, I, I take care of your every need. You no longer have to worry about work or paying the bills or paying your taxes or taking care of a household. All you ever have to do is spend time with me and have fun. I never allow you to feel pain. I never let your needs go unmet. You sleep away the long, boring hours in your tubes, and then you only wake up when it's time for a party. Isn't this the perfect life? And you know what? John Agar and Sally, totally ungrateful for everything (laughs) Mr. Franz is doing for them. (laughs) John Agar yells, "Change us back the way we were," but uh, <laughs> Mr. Franz says, "No, I like you better the way you are." Mm-hmm. Uh, then we segue to Mr. Franz taking quite a while to uh, explain how the shrinking works. His and it, what exactly is the principle here? It's all based in
1: in the optics of projection, right? It's it's yeah. <laughs> which feels like a very sort of um, like AV uh, way of trying to understand scale. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's not. It's like it's even the scene is even kind of light on techno babble. Um, like there's not even any just techno babble to sort of make you feel like something high uh, in science was going on. No, it's just like well, you know how a projector works. Well, like that, except with your body.
0: Yeah, so he can, like, move a projector farther away from the wall and the image gets bigger and vice versa. And at first I thought this was an analogy, but Mm -hmm. then it turns out that's just what he's doing. He's using, like, photo, I don't know, yeah, like optics to, I don't understand it. But another thing to note, uh, did you notice the same thing when Franz actually goes over to the table where the machine shrinks people He's trying to demonstrate for Bob and Sally by shrinking a cat. But then when we see where they are, like from their perspective, a shelf is blocking their view. So they would not actually be able to see the demonstration at all.
1: Mm, I didn't notice this. I was just too distracted by the cat. Because I was thinking back to Incredible Shrinking Man. I was like, are they going to have to fight that cat? What's going to happen with the cat?
0: No, instead he shrinks the cat and makes a, a super cute tiny kitten.
1: Yeah, yeah, the cat becomes a kitten that fits in a matchbox, which is adorable.
0: And then uh, they bring out a bunch of other tube people. Mr. Franz is like, well, let's have a little uh, tube people party. So they get uh, a lady named Georgia Lane and a Marine in a Marine uniform named Mac and a couple of G-Willikers sock-hop teenagers named Stan and Laurie. <laughs> and oh, I guess that's the whole gang. There are other tube people who we just never see woken up.
1: Yeah, like I guess the nurse tube person is only brought out when somebody needs medical attention.
0: Uh, maybe. Well, yeah. you no, know, the nurse he was talking about was just a straight up doll. So I don't know if he makes them, huh. he's like, okay. here, get, get your health care from this doll and they have to pretend. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> but so they have a party. Uh, Franz puts on a, a hip swing record and it's You know, playing, playing hot music and they get out tiny refreshments. There's like a platter with a tiny champagne bottle and some kind of food on it. It looks weird. Yeah. So, I mean, two friends is credit. Like he's trying in his
1: own, uh, you know, his warp perspective, he's, he's trying to give them a good time, show them a good time. He's not making them run around in rat wheels or anything.
0: Oh, yeah, so Sally and Bob are like, this is terrible, but the others are very complacent, especially at first. Georgia Elaine's like, I don't know, I like being a doll. And <laughs> uh, uh, one of the, I think it's Laurie, says, hey, are you two engaged? And then Mr. Franz implies that he will shrink a priest so that he can properly marry Bob and Sally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's a weird line I didn't understand. So Sally does not like the fact that she has been shrunk. And then Lori, the, the, the teenager, says, hey, look at it this way. We all sometimes have to do things we don't want to do just to have some freedom like this. Mm,
1: yeah, it sounds like she's really stretching to normalize being kidnapped and shrunk by a, a mad doll maker.
0: Yeah. Oh, and here's the scene where, like, they dance to the record a little bit, and then Lori sings the song, My Living Doll. This is this is good because it's a fun little song, but
1: also I believe Franz is like mouthing the words along to oh, it. Yeah. Like he's really he's really into it. And again, the whole the, throughout the whole movie, you really buy into Franz. Uh, like you, you you feel that this is a guy who is uniquely lonely, and his loneliness has been warped into this uh, this level of control and manipulation.
0: Yeah. Uh, there's a whole action sequence here, by the way. So the puppet people are partying, and then Emil shows up. He's, oh, uh, he's here to talk to Franz about something. And this is one of those scenes where Franz is like, oh, my human friend, I hate you. Be quiet. I must get <laughs> back to my dolls. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: But it, but there there is legitimate tension here because yeah they they try and call uh, some for some help they get the, the telephone they're yelling into the telephone it takes you know all all of them working together to to, to, to do this physically uh, but. They cannot be heard. The music is too loud. Their voices are too small. Uh, but the the whole time you're it's like, are they going to be able to pull it off? Is, is he going to come back into the room and catch them? Is he I was just expecting somebody to be squashed uh, to be made an example of or he'd feed them to a, you know, a, I don't know, an ape or something.
0: Well, there's multiple uh, attempts. They try to call somebody on the phone. Also, while he's distracted, they try to rebigulate themselves. Like, oh yeah, that's right. Remember, they put the marine on the table and they're trying to operate the stuff on the the controls on the machine. But they run out of time. It seems like it almost works, but Mr. Franz is coming back in, so they scamper back up to the table. And it seems like the props keep changing size in relationship to them throughout the sequence. Uh, But then Franz puts them all back in their tubes. Uh, so while our puppet people are asleep, the detective comes back to investigate Franz again. You know, it's, are you sure you aren't turning people into dolls? <laughs> and meanwhile, there is a kid in the office who wants to get her doll repaired. I think this might be Bird Eye Gordon's kid. Yep. Uh, but in the meantime, this is when she, oh, she discovers the miniature cat in the matchbox and starts playing with it. And yes, it is very cute.
1: Yeah, and he's like, oh, no, you can't play with that anymore right now. You've got to give it back. And she's like, no, I'm never giving this back. This is a yeah. cat that fits in a matchbox, you crazy old man. Uh, this is mine
0: forever now. Yeah. Uh, so we're going into the third act. Uh, so I- Emil shows up, and he needs friends to repair his Jekyll and Hyde puppet, which, by the way, looks exactly like Dracula. <laughs> But Emil reveals that the the police have been questioning him about Franz. And this really gets Franz spooked and he decides like, okay, I got to destroy all my dolls. And Sally actually overhears him talking about this. He's got to destroy all the dolls because the police are on to him. But before he does that, He's going to go to the theater, repair Emil's doll, and then he's going to take the shrink friends out of their tubes, take them to the theater with him in the suitcase where he's going to give them a big going away party.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's even a little darker than that. Like, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's he's basically saying that I, it's going to be a total murder-suicide situation. Like, yes. I'm going to destroy you all and kill myself, uh, but it's all right because we're all going to die together uh, because you're my friends it is very creepy it's it, like it the, the creepiness uh, is seems intentional
0: and definitely shines through oh yes yeah but also sally overhears this and then she really does not show the appropriate level of urgency in telling all of the other people like <laughs> yeah. so they get taken out of the tubes and they're all getting ready for the party you know bathing and getting dressed and stuff and mm-hmm. then it's like hey sally what did you say about he's going to destroy us all and then sally's <laughs> like oh yeah that's right <laughs> yeah So he takes them to the theater. There's a whole uh, sequence at the theater, several things to discuss. One is he tries to make them act alongside the Jekyll and Hyde slash Dracula puppet. And this Mm -hmm. is where we get the scene of the attack on the puppet. So he's making them go into the, I don't know, the little play box and act out the parts in the play that I guess in reality would be done by puppets. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, but, but when he makes John Agar go in there, John Agar says, uh, you know, uh, this Jekyll and Hyde puppet, he is a monster, but he's not half the monster you are. And then he (laughs) grabs the puppet and rips its head off and smashes it.
1: Which is kind of a ridiculous-looking sequence, but it works on other levels because it's like puppets are another thing; these little things made uh, via his craft or or tweaked via his craft. Like these are the things that Franz actually cares about, and this is like his one Agar's one chance to lash out at him.
0: Oh, and then Franz, th- this line was hilarious. He goes, "No, stop it, Bob. The puppet. You're destroying the puppet." I. <laughs> <laughs> I wish there was a term for that thing. You would call it like absurd specificity in dialogue where like a pronoun should be used, but instead people specify the noun in a way that sounds ludicrous another example i was thinking of is in um i feel like this especially comes in scenes where the dialogue is accompanying special effects shots instead of Mm. just like normal people on a set Uh, so one of the other examples that comes to my mind is in superman Four: the quest for peace where the the evil villain nuclear man uh, I, I think it goes like this. At one point, he says, "I will hurt people," and then Superman says, "No, the people."
1: <laughs> How would you uh, compare this to the the uh, the line in Troll Two, uh, where the guy uh, yells, "They're eating her, and then they're going to eat me." <laughs>
0: slightly different maybe but no no <laughs> no yes uh, that's actually similar very related thing just the narrating of events that everybody in in the room can see happening that you would <laughs> ha- have no need to explain yeah yeah i mean i guess it's different maybe it, you need writers and
1: well, maybe not with troll too but uh maybe writers who wrote for radio i don't know yeah because it would make sense if you did not have visuals and you need to uh, like establish blow for blow what is supposed to be happening and. Right and, and, and so forth, but at any rate,
0: the puppet you're destroying the puppet. <laughs> well, anyway, F- Franz here gets interrupted by a stagehand, uh, and in the meantime, the doll people all scatter and escape. And there's a big adventure sequence where Bob and Sally they run, they make it outside, they are briefly menaced by a rat, mm-hmm. uh, but then they're in in a, in a really. Shocking twist, there's a cat that comes to the rescue by attacking the rat that's <laughs> attacking them. Mm, who who would have expected it? That's a real twist, Bert. So th- I think their plan is they got to get back to the building they came from and get back into Mr. France's office so they can rebigulate themselves in the machine. Mm-hmm. And along the way, they get attacked by a dog. Uh, but then a delivery man chases the dog away. And they reinfiltrate the office by getting inside a parcel. They like get inside a box that's addressed to the office. The mail carrier takes them to the office, and then they rebigulate just before Mister mm. Franz arrives to stop them. Uh, and then, uh, so like they, so Bob and Sally are restored to regular size, and then we get just such a weird and abrupt ending. I'd say this is an all-time, like, top five weird off-putting endings movie. Absolutely. Like,
1: for the time period, if you had to predict the ending for this movie, you would think, all right, they they get big again, they save the day, and our last shot is surely going to be our heroes reunited, maybe talking to the police uh, or something, and then, then, then it'll be closed credits. But that's
0: not what we get. No, instead, the two of them are rebigulated. No idea what's going on with the other puppet people. Last time we saw them, they scattered in the theater, and Franz was looking for them, and we don't know what happened to them. And then back in the office, Franz is standing there, and he says, don't leave me. Please don't leave me. I'm all alone, and sad music plays, and we zoom out on a couple of empty glass tubes, and that's the end.
1: Yeah, it's such a weird moment for us to feel bad for friends one last time. Instead of ending on a happy note for the release of all his kidnapping and experimentation victims, we don't end on his demise or his arrest. It's just implied that, I guess, something will come of this. Um, It's just him feeling super sad that his only friends are being uh, taken away from him. And... The, the weird thing is that, again, due to the, especially to the performance and, you know, the way the scene's uh, constructed here, the moment is executed well enough that you can't help but feel it hit a bit. But then, at least with me anyway, I was uh, like, I, it sunk in for a second. Then I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> I'm not feeling sorry for this guy. Tr- quit trying to make me feel sorry for the man who kidnapped and shrunk people and was going to, um, uh, going to kill them all and himself in the final moments of this film if he had it his way.
0: Yeah, it doesn't make any—so, like, we don't see the villain get his comeuppance. We don't see all of the good characters, like, restored to normal size. We have no idea what their fate is. And then it just plays sad music and ends right there, like, ends right at the moment before there would be some kind of resolution.
1: Yeah, like, what if Misery had ended this way? Or Silence of the Lambs or something, you know? Um I think a better ending would have been like maybe he uh, like falls down an elevator shaft and then suddenly we discover, oh, here are those five additional broken tubes of John Agar's and then John Agar's eat him. I think that would have been good.
0: <laughs> That'd be really good.
1: But I don't know, maybe that's not not 50s enough. That would have been more like a 70s ending.
0: What if it just ended with John Agar doing the speech from The Incredible Shrinking Man? <laughs> does, the, does the infinitesimal become the infinite? I don't know. <laughs>
1: Hopefully John Agar's character has grown as a person because of this experience. Yeah. But the movie's not concerned with that. It's more concerned with France. Uh he seems to be weirdly enough the twisted heart and soul of this picture.
0: Yeah. So, I think it should become a yearly tradition, much like uh, you might watch Halloween or even Halloween 3 on the night of Halloween, or much like uh, we watch uh, The Wicker Man every May Day. I think people should watch Attack of the Puppet People every year on the night of the Watergate (laughs) break-in.
1: All right. Why not? Why not? Uh, You know, they have that HBO series coming out about the White House plumbers. Uh, The concerns, uh, you know, the uh, Watergate. I wonder if they are going to include anything about Attack of the Puppet People. I think that would be great. It seems like the tone of the show would uh, lend itself uh, to covering that little uh, historical tidbit. All right, we're going to go ahead and close it out here. But a reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with Tuesdays and Thursdays episodes being our core episodes. On Mondays, we do Lister Mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form episode, a monster fact or an artifact. And then on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to talk about a weird movie on Weird House Cinema. And if you want to see a complete list of all the movies we've covered on Weird House Cinema, well, you can go to a couple of places. I blog about these episodes at somemutedmusic.com. But also, if you use Letterboxd, That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. We have a profile there. It's Weird House. And we have a list of all the movies we've covered, links to where you can listen to them. And uh, it's pretty neat. You can see them in order. The little posters arranged, arranged like miniaturized people in tubes for your pleasure and your delight.
0: Huge thanks to our audio producer, JJ Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to
2: Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
3: Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury.